0: Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the Sustainable Development Goals and the Roadmap to 2030.
1: We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast.
0: So in the last 10 years, you can see uh, the World Bank and the UN throwing billions of dollars into buying these products that get thrown out within a month.
1: If you're not in their shoes, you'll never
0: understand what solutions will actually work for them. Sort of focusing on the big, innovative, disruptive startups, which is pretty cool. I think the major change has to come from within communities. So small scale efforts by grassroots organizations to bring in awareness and understanding amongst people.
1: Mohamed Mikdad is a chemical engineering and economics graduate from the University of Rochester in New York. Currently, Mohammed is working as a global operations manager for Every Water, an organisation based in Karachi, Pakistan, where he supports the international expansion of emerging water-based clean technologies. Above all, Mohammed is an individual passionate about utilising modern technology to improve
0: people's lives.
1: Mohammed,
0: how are you doing? want to com- have a complaint that I'm still waiting for that morning run with you. <laughs> I hope you've been running every morning without me. Oh, I've, I've not gone to the gym or done any exercise in Shenzhen. Since Shenzhen? Yes. What? <laughs> Tell me why. Too much, too much work. Not too much work. I was getting married. So like I was busy with that, plus work and everything. Uh-huh. So
1: But yeah, so me and uh, Kevin, you met Kevin Sofen from our track. Me and him had this great idea to start doing little podcasts with people from Unleash and maybe those just passionate about the SDGs in general. So you were a very interesting character, Unleash. So I thought, you know what, you're a great start for me. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. First question. Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of different affordable, innovative water purification technologies out there for homes and communities. So why do nearly a billion people still lack access to clean water?
0: Um, I think uh, while that statistic uh, holds, um, it has basically two layers to it. So it's important to break it down and actually understand what the problem is and where the problem is. Mm. So uh, with that one billion people figure, there's a scarcity problem and there's a purity problem, right? It's a different problem that uh, there are uh, some million people who are living in the middle of uh, deserts which have no water whatsoever, right? So that's a different problem. And then there are so many people who live right next to these huge bodies of water like Lake Victoria in uh, Africa, uh, who have a bunch of water, it's just not drinkable. So they don't have access to clean drinking water. So these are two very different problems uh, and they have uh, come a long way uh, in each of their spheres. But I feel like the purity end of the problem is a lot more fixable than the scarcity end of the problem, right? So 20 years down uh, before, ago, um, it was the technology that was, you know, uh, the big problem for us. Um, so it's not anymore. I, I believe that uh, we have enough solutions out there at different price points. So you have solutions which are cheaper than uh, a cent a liter, which is chlorine. Uh, and that can go up as you go up the economic ladder. So you can have $300 livestock products or $400 soil products. And they all work sufficiently to provide you clean drinking water so that should have been enough as as the stats shows you people have not adopted these uh, solutions so i think there are three levels to it there's a cultural cultural barrier there there's a financial barrier there and then there's a physical barrier there so it's more or less a human problem now not really a technology problem and my take on that is because i i developed water based products i realized that a lot of these products are actually developed by organizations or companies in 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 the developed world so they haven't lived the experience of uh, living in these communities and what it's like to face this challenge on a day-to-day basis. So they miss a lot of those cultural and uh, daily life cues, which are important. So for example, everyone wants, if you ask them, do you want clean water? They will say yes. But then you ask them, will you go through three different steps and then wait an hour each day to get you know two liters of clean drinking water? And they'll probably say no. That's the problem that a lot of these solutions run into. Mm-hmm. That it's not very easy to use them. Um, There are people who are working on these. My company, Every Water, is also one of those organizations which have actually realized that technology is only half the problem. If you don't make it so effortless to use the product uh, while also being cheap and available and all of those things, it's not going to go too far. Right. So in the last 10 years, you can see uh, the World Bank and the U.N. throwing billions of dollars into buying these products that get thrown out within a month. So Mm -hmm. all of those aspects of the problem have not been addressed. So then, there's the financial side of it. Like sometimes the good solutions are expensive, and then the physical period that times uh, we don't people buy whatever is available on their shelf. If your product is not on the shelf, people are not going to get it, obviously. So that problem has still not been solved. It's not really, uh, and you also need to understand that companies who are making these products, their economics are very different from where you see. Of course, when you look at a company developing clean water solutions, your first guess is that okay, you're doing a noble cause, but the, the the company is thinking that of course we want to help people, but this also has to be profitable to actually deploy that, right? So the route that a lot of these organizations have taken is that their customer and the user are two very different people. So, for example, Life Straw and Air, two of the largest organizations out there, with mm-hmm. the water filters, actually sell their product to the World Bank or an NGO used down used by someone which who will never interact with the organization which has developed the with the the product, right? So it's like if Samsung never had to deal with any of the people who use Samsungs, what is their incentive to innovate and improve the product? There is no innovation loop which takes feedback from the people who use it. They're so far away physically, and uh, even in terms of wavelengths, right, on which they think. So that innovation is happening quick enough. You know, if if, if Samsung had given up on improving their uh, Note series after the Note 7 started going up, and no one complained about it, you would still have a phone which would keep blowing up in airplanes, right? But because of innovation loop and people know if their product does not improve, people will not buy it. That's why they've improved it. So there's this problem here in terms of who's buying the product and who's actually using it. And this disconnect is leading to a lot of uh, lack of innovation in this space, I think.
1: What you're saying right now about the end users and that mismatch there is something that we discussed a lot about Unleash, right? It's the whole Unleash process. Like, who is your end user really? Like, drill that down. You need to know who these people are you need to really empathize with them if you're not in their shoes you'll never understand you know what solutions will actually work for them like exactly. you said you can throw all the money you want at it and, and if there's if there's more barriers if there's organizations in the middle um, how is how are they ever really going to get to the actual end users and what they
0: need and what they want that sounds like a very simple idea that you and i had discussed but as you realize when we went through those Exercises at at, at unleash we it was it really wasn't that easy to identify that, <laughs> yeah. really and I think this basic idea is what's wrong with the with the approach that people have right now towards the clean water mm-hmm. uh, water problem around the world, and if it's addressed properly. I think it's not that big of a thing that it can be fixed. It can be fixed. It just, it needs to be addressed properly. And I just want to touch on the scarcity part of the problem because that's been, we've not discussed that so far. I think that's where we haven't really made too much progress at all. Right. We are still relying on dams, which is, uh, I think, uh, an idea from the (laughs) before Christ. We haven't really figured out things there. Of course, people come out with these gimmicky solutions every once in a while. So you'll find companies which have created this revolutionary idea to, you know, suck out water from the air, basically. And scarcity is the problem that, like, I don't think anyone has openly addressed. We are still trying to figure out ways to do that. And I think um, as we move forward in this conversation, I will share how we may address this going forward.
1: Mm. And I think actually it's really important that you've distinguished between the two, purity and scarcity. And course, there's a lot of technological solutions, membranes and, and sort of reverse osmosis, different things out there that can be used to purify. But scarcity is going to be one of the biggest issues, especially with a growing population. We've nearly got eight billion people on the planet. <clears throat> that actually kind of leads me into into another question I had, which was um, that this the statistic, the nearly a billion people that still act, lack as- access to clean water also includes those that are on bottled water and tanker water. So it kind of feeds into the whole scarcity problem, which we're not solving by by bottled water and tanker water. Um, And I was wondering how you thought that that was gonna develop in the future. Do you think bottled water and tanker water is just gonna come more and more and more prominent?
0: Or are there gonna be other solutions that uh, sort of arise? I think uh, there's a thing about about, uh, being underdeveloped that sort of comes to the aid of these developing economies right now. Um, So a lot of these countries, for example, Pakistan is building entirely new cities because we didn't have any before, right? Uh, So we're building entirely new cities, which gives us a heads up. So now instead of responding, so for example, think of a big city, like uh, for example, if you already have Nairobi, right? Mm. Nairobi has been there for thousands of years. Uh, It's really hard to change the fundamental infrastructure of the city, which is already underground, which was designed for, for example, a million people. And now there are 20 million people there. To be very honest, like living in Pakistan, I know for a fact that no one's giving up on their granddad's home, which needs to be, brought down a new water uh, testing system there. That's not happening. So it's almost impossible uh, to fix that problem. So I think water tankers and bottled water is going to be the prevalent thing going forward in the cities which are already in place. But I have a lot of hope in countries which have this problem are going to be built from scratch going forward. Pakistan's capital, for example, Nambad, was built in 1970s. Uh, So I think a lot of these newer cities will start popping up around the world. And the good thing about that is you can proactively address these problems in the distribution and design of the city itself. So it can sort of mm. expand as the population grows and address those needs. I think it has become political leadership has been slow to recognize the impact this would have had Seen this example. I think moving forward, we can address it.
1: I think I think China's a really good example as well, because they've. Again, this is maybe a potential clickbait story, but a lot of um, talk around the sponge cities that they're developing in China. So they're actually trying to capture a lot of the rainwater and water coming through the natural hydrological cycle and store that and reuse it for different purposes. Um, And and actually back to the Nairobi one, I thought that was really interesting because Nairobi are building an entirely new city from scratch or sorry, Kenya Kenya is building an entirely
0: new city from scratch just outside Nairobi. And I think one of our friends from uh, Melbourne, um, Steve, he actually work for a company in Melbourne that is actually trying to figure out how to retrofit the city to form catchments for storing rainwater and floodwater. So they're trying to think of how they can convert skating parks into water holdings, oh, okay. and water and have reservoirs under there. So there are cool ways to get around this problem. But again, the, the, the foresight that's required and the finance that's required is usually absent in developing countries around the world who really, really need these solutions. So, for them, I think uh, they have to move out from their older cities, uh, either build cities on the periphery of those older cities or build entirely new cities next to water sources. So, I think that rethinking needs to happen since we understand the catastrophe that you can face if you don't think about these things.
1: Yeah, completely. And something that I only really discovered when I was uh, at Unleashed working on our, our solution um, with farming was that farming plays in Pakistan, especially, it's over 95% of fresh water is consumed. People are thinking like, hey, Cape Town has got a major drought, um, I think that was in 2018. You better watch how much, how long you're taking a shower for. I think all of these things are really good and it's it's useful. That everyone really cares and is involved in, in the process of saving water and conserving water. But um, you, you should also be thinking about the other sectors and like the big players that are actually using all of this water.
0: I think this is, uh, as you mentioned uh, quite correctly, this is a representation of the Pareto principle, which is the 80 20 rule, you know. Uh, of course, all of us can change our shower heads and all of us can start uh, not washing our cars. But as long as the farmers are still using and flood uh, watering, <laughs> it's going to have no impact. In, even today in Pakistan, water is free for the farmers. So it really isn't an incentive to stop using more of it. As long as you have it, just get it in your field, get it in your field, someone else will. Uh, so I think this is like a system-level problem, not just an individual-level problem. It's the problem is the people who are concerned about this problem are not the people who can actually take steps to fix it, really, on a, on a significant mm-hmm. level. I mean, of course, I can save a few liters each day by not showering for 20 minutes, but I'm not really the linchpin in this whole problem.
1: Yeah, completely. It needs systematic change. But of course, systematic change can be driven from the individual. There needs to be some serious overhauls. And we're seeing that with more than just water problems, climate problems, and environmental issues. Transverses all of them, I think.
0: You know, uh, it's an externality. The person who's causing this damage is not really facing the consequence of it directly. So people who live or, you know, live an agricultural lifestyle, they're already living next to water bodies. So they don't actually have to face that scarcity problem that much. Of course, 10 years down the road, when there is no water even to uh, water their fields, then they'll feel the pain. But right now, they can't. It. So somehow the system has to be in place. So there's, you have to tax such behavior so that in this incentivizes. It sounds like
1: we've already come to the answer here. But um, as we're nearing this 8 billion people on the planet, what do you think the biggest threat is going to be globally in the future? And it sounds like it's scarcity. And do you have any insights on, on where do you think it's going to be the, the worst impacted or any more details on?
0: I'm not an expert on speaking on scarcity. Uh, to point which areas are going to be worst hit, obviously the logical, you know, answer would be that areas which already are, are already facing this problem. So South Africa has been facing this problem. Pakistan is starting to face this problem. Instead of focusing on that, on the areas which will, which will um, you know face this problem, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, it's important to understand that almost 70% of the world's largest rivers have already dried up in the last 40 years. Almost everyone will be affected by this. Uh, there's no, there's no getting around this. Even Beijing, for example, the water table has dropped by 10 feet almost every every 10 years. So that's a drastic rate of depletion of groundwater. Uh, that means that surface water is all we're left with, and surface water is already being impacted by climate change. So you can't rely on your rivers anymore. Uh, but you've been sucking so much water out of the ground that you can't actually rely on that anymore because the deeper you go, the more toxins and uh, chemicals start appearing in your water. So you'll have lead contamination. Pakistan, actually Lahore, the second largest city of Pakistan, actually has this problem that the water table has dropped so much that arsenic has started popping up in homes. It was not a thing 20 years ago, but because the city's population has exploded over the last 20 years Mm -hmm. and everyone has a borehole in their backyard and they're trying to pump water out and because of that uh, they're not allowing enough time for it to recharge. There's no policy on water recharge. I think China has taken one of the smartest steps in this regard uh, in the last uh, few years. I'm not entirely sure when they made the change. It is actually banned in China to have your own uh, water bowl well in the house. Uh, and the philosophy behind that is because this is a public resource, let the authorities decide where which aquifer they want to pool from and how they want to distribute that water. But obviously, that requires a lot of enforcement of the laws and the rule of law in that regard. And that is, again, a problem in developing countries around the world. So Lahore has not been able to fix this problem. But now there's actually talk within the government sector that they might enforce a ban on having your own bore wells in the house. That can help us sort of manage water better, but it still doesn't tackle the scarcity problem. So I think uh, that needs to be addressed moving forward.
1: And I think that's incredibly important because these some of these deeper aquifers have taken maybe even millions of years to fill up and we're just building infrastructure around this, you know, that secure supply of water. So we think and we're just draining and draining and draining. And, you know, when it hits day zero, it's game over. I was actually just in Australia um, and I was speaking to a farmer there and he was he had a number of uh, boreholes on his farm. The first he showed me the old one from a few years ago was seven meters deep. The second, um, not so old but out of use was fourteen meters, and then his most recent borehole was well over twenty-five meters. So he's digging further and further and further, and eventually that water is not gonna be there anymore. And then suddenly when you've built this infrastructure around that dependence on the water, what happens?
0: I think there's a fundamental lack of understanding in 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 people regarding how groundwater works as well. Like I don't think people understand that if you it sounds like a basic idea but they think it's just it's as easy to recharge the aquifer as it is to take water from it so people think that if it's sea rain it means that the, of course the aquifer has been recharged but they don't understand that it actually takes hundreds of years to recharge a big aquifer properly i think um, that is that is an education problem that can be addressed by informing people how to even if you are going to allow people to dig boreholes bore they can at least be educated on how to do it within an hour or two by using uh, machines, you can devices. You can actually tell if a uh, aquifer can be recharged. At what rate can it be recharged? What's the quality of the groundwater? How long will it last you? That can help you plan effectively moving forward, but people simply don't understand this can be done.
1: Yeah, so there is the amazing tech out there. It just <clears throat> requires some education and some implementation. And I, I think actually with, on that tech point, um, I would be quite interested to know if you could leave us maybe on a, on a high note after all these neg- negative discussions, you could say, with any interesting or disruptive startups uh, that you've been seeing in the water sector or you, could, or you could imagine
0: might have a big impact on clean water access for people of the future. I'll begin with what we are doing at Everywater. I think that's one thing very interesting. Uh, we actually had discussed this with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well, and this has excited them. So uh, the data pretty clear that uh, the surface water, uh, which we can't control, to be honest, now because of climate change, has been depleting. It's also clear that groundwater reservoirs are depleting. Uh, but there's this resource which has always been around, but we humans have actually never really figured out to economically use it or salvage it, if that's an appropriate word. And that's seawater, right? So mm-hmm. going for desalination is, I think, the only way we can ensure that water will not become Basically, you know how oil is black gold? I think uh, that's where we're getting with water. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, To ensure that we don't have have water wars going forward in the near future, I think we have to turn to the oceans. And that's where innovation needs to happen. So, so far, this was only being done by the richer countries. Uh, So, for example, Dubai was was doing this. And uh, Israel actually has really high-tech technology here. So, I think our attention is going to go towards the oceans. Historically, man has been, mankind or humankind has been not too successful. But I think since we realize that this is probably the only way to go, we will see revolutionary changes going forward in turning seawater into drinking water and then pumping it upstream. So every time we share this idea with someone that we actually plan to use our technology to bring the cost of uh, desalination down using solar. So if so, basically we innovate on membrane technology by innovating, making a good enough membrane. You can actually lower the power requirements. You can actually use solar power to do desalination. So that's a green solution. First of all, the great thing about this is we can actually, we are trying to uh, desalinate seawater at the Arabian sea and then pump it upstream to uh, mainland or central Punjab area of Pakistan, where a lot of agriculture is happening. So you can actually reverse desertification by doing this. And at first glance, people think that it's almost stupid to pump water somewhere because they've never heard of it. But it actually is very doable because, uh, for example, Singapore almost gets uh, 40% of its water from Malaysia and all of that is pumped. So it's it's a very practical solution and we've done the math and it makes sense. It's just that you need to have enough minds focused on this problem to solve it. It's not like it can be solved by just one team sitting in Pakistan or Singapore or somewhere. This has to be a collective effort. Whoever cracks desalination is going to be the savior going forward. In terms of organizations that I think are doing some work, one is SolarSAC. I think uh, the big innovation I think they're doing, which is, I think, uh, impactful at really the bottom of the pyramid, the poorest of the poor, the solution that they use for the clean water uh, supply is that they use a uh, solar disinfection. So they put water in these You know, bottles from Coca Cola and Pepsi, and they put it on their roof in the sun for four hours, and that Mm -hmm. kills the bacteria in them. So, what SolarSac is doing is actually they're using this solar catalyst, which brings down the time that it takes to disinfect water using solar power from four hours to one hour. And they're actually trying to bring it down to 20 or 30 minutes. If they can do that, that would be a groundbreaking change, and that can actually impact billions of people around the world who can't afford these uh, other nicer solutions. Uh, and this can be actually scaled up to provide community level water as well. Uh, and can be actually like a cheap solution. So like it basically runs itself. So you don't need to do anything with it. So I think they are doing some incredible work. The other thing I am seeing that's gonna be impactful is there's an organization called M Water. It's based out of New York. And what they're doing is they're basically developing this app so people can start logging their water quality. So right now, uh, especially in pakistan and the developing countries the government actually doesn't know what the water infrastructure looks like and what's the quality of water in order to make effective policies and enforce them they need to have data on it and mwater that makes it really really easy for people to just upload their data points it's like you know how google is uh, crowdsourcing information on the google maps that's basically what water is doing with water and i think that's even though it sounds like not a uh, It doesn't sound very innovative, just have a platform, but I think if you go on their website and see, they have entire maps of countries. If you have that level of information, you can basically form policies, help control spread of viruses and bacteria and outbreaks so much more effectively than you currently can. Uh, And lastly, I think... um, sort of focusing on the big, innovative, disruptive startups, which is pretty cool, I think the major change has to come from within communities. So small-scale efforts by grassroots organizations to bring in awareness and understanding amongst people. I think that's what's going to drive the change going forward. As soon as people start getting educated and start uh, actually uh, caring for their own health uh, and understanding that how small changes in their lifestyle can affect their long-term health and uh, outcomes. Once they start realizing that, that's going to be uh, where real impact is. That's where our effort is going to start bearing fruit. But none of the large organizations or startups can go in people's minds and make that change. It has to come from within the communities. And so I think uh, in, ter- in this list of uh, big organizations, I actually have a lot of faith, more faith than these organizations in the grassroots organizations, which mm. have a huge name, don't have uh, too much cool stuff going around, don't are not raising million dollar investments. But they are making the real change on the ground, so I think I have faith in these in these organisations, and I hope, hope, hope that going forward uh, we will be together making this change and uh, hopefully tackle this challenge.
1: Awesome, Mohammed. That was uh, that was a very, very nice note to end on, and very inspiring. So thank you for sharing all of those um, interesting and disruptive startups and and um, just basic vehicles for us to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. Thanks
0: for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media, and stay tuned for updates from the Unleashed in the United Nations community.
1: The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.